Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. As we grow, things change and we're not necessarily prepared always for the next level. We think we are and then we hit a challenge that we've never experienced before and we don't know how to handle it. Welcome back to episode 13 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Lisa Fabrega, a leadership coach who helps ambitious people expand their capacity to handle more growth, wealth, and success. For more than 10 years, she has helped entrepreneurs, corporate executives, Academy Award nominees, and Nobel Prize organization candidates break through boundaries that have been holding them back from their next level. Her signature approach around building capacity is so relevant to nonprofit leaders, enabling them to reach their highest levels of success and impact by deepening capacity around money, visibility, purpose, embodiment, structures, and boundaries. I know these are all areas I have had to work on as a leader, and I'm sure they're going to resonate with you too. So let's go meet Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here with Lisa Fabrega, um, and she is going to be talking to us about her amazing capacity work. So let's start. I'm familiar with your work from following you on Instagram and just being a fan, but why don't we start with a little bit of just letting folks know who you are and what it is that you do and what has sort of brought you here? Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I'm glad to be here to talk about this as well, because I think that capacity is something that very few people are educated on. And it's something that we sometimes tend to put to the side without even realizing it. And it's actually one of the most important things. If for any of us that have big goals that we want to achieve, if we don't address this, this is when we usually find ourselves coming up against a challenge that we are plateauing at, or we can't figure our way out of it, or we're feeling frustrated or burned out. So what I basically do and have been doing for the last 12 years and taught to almost over 74,000 people at this point is something I developed called the capacity framework. And what I mean when I talk about capacity, I define capacity as your ability to hold, handle, and receive every next level of your impact. And as we grow, things change and we're not necessarily prepared always for the next level. We think we are and then we hit a challenge that we've never experienced before and we don't know how to handle it. Or we grow to the next level and then we start burning out, our relationships start breaking down, stuff that's never come up for us starts to come up and we don't know how to deal with it. 
And the reason I even came into this work is that when I started my coaching business, I actually started as a nutrition coach. And yet I noticed that I was working with a lot of very ambitious, successful people. And after like two sessions, we weren't talking about food anymore. We were talking about this. And at the time, I didn't know to call it capacity until, you know, and like it is with our purpose, it evolves. And as we grow, we start getting clearer and clearer. And I started to realize that there was six areas that that people who have big goals, who are very ambitious and are here to make a big impact in the world, that they tend to struggle with. Their money, visibility, purpose, embodiment, which I was more like your inner leadership, your emotional, mental, spiritual, physical capacity, and then structural capacity, which is like the foundations and the systems and the teams that hold you up, and then your boundary capacity. And I just learned this from working with so many people and you see the patterns repeat and you see the walls that people hit and you see the things that come up for people. And I realized we have been taught that when we come up against a problem within ourselves or externally to go seek a strategy, to go do a five-step system, to apply, you know, a meditation or a mantra or Whatever, you know, and there's nothing wrong with those things. They're very helpful. But what happens when those things aren't working for you anymore? What happens when the self-care practice, no matter how many times you do it, is not curing your burnout? There's something deeper going on. And I realized it's our capacity because when we start in our work, in our careers, let's say we're at a pint, right? Our capacity is a pint. But as we start impacting more people and more people are relying on us and there's more people looking at us and there's bigger goals we're achieving, that pint can't just keep being the same size. It's got to grow to a gallon and you're going to be dealing with problems that are like gallon size problems. You can't deal with those with a pint size container. That's the metaphor I like to use. And so I started to realize that that's why when you take a strategy, if you try to take a gallon size problem and apply a gallon size strategy with pint size capacity, that's why the strategy isn't working. And so that is how I came into my work. And so it's now evolved into this entire framework that I've created and that I walk all of my clients through to increase their capacity. And I have seen it help people break through years long plateaus weird health issues that nobody could figure out what was going on because of the burnout, team problems that persisted for years, all that stuff that people could not figure out how to solve. I see a lot of it being solved and helped through building capacity. Mm. Okay. So can we maybe define capacity even a little bit? Or I feel like something that you're talking about here might even be outside of our sort of realm of understanding in terms of, right? Like, do you believe is our capacity infinite? Like, can we keep growing? Okay. Our capacity is infinite. So what I said about capacity earlier is that the definition of capacity is your ability to hold, to handle and receive every next level. So hold means if I'm in a team meeting or if I'm in a meeting with a bunch of leaders or people who are trying to achieve the same goal as I am, and I'm sort of the one overseeing everything, And there's a blow up between two people or someone comes and attacks me and loses their temper, right? Can I hold the container so that we can steer it back to where it needs to go, show up in my values as a leader and solve the conflict, right? That's an example of having capacity. 
Some people will have that experience and be so stressed out. They'll be sick to their stomachs. They don't want to go back to work, whatever. That's a lack of capacity. That doesn't mean stay in a toxic situation, obviously, because then you need capacity to set boundaries and get yourself out of it. (laughs) But that's an example, a real life example of capacity. So that's holding, then handling. Can you handle the stuff that's going to come up? What happens when someone tries to sue you? What happens when, you know, I had a situation where in the middle of a huge business launch that I was doing, which we could not stop, my one of my family members was murdered. And I had to finish the launch and still lead my team and go to the funeral and do my grieving and my mourning at the same time, because there's times in life where we don't have the option of shutting something down. and We have to do two to four things at once. And so that's an example of handling, right? And then receiving, the receiving portion of it is what happens when, uh, when you notice that lottery winners will win a bunch of money and then two years later they're broke? That's mm-hmm. a capacity problem because they still had the money capacity of wherever they were before they won the lottery. They didn't know how to receive that much money. They didn't know how to hold it. They didn't know how to handle it. And so they just mm-hmm. spend back down to their pint size capacity, their original financial baseline. And that's a great example of what happens when we don't have capacity. Wow. There are so many areas of this that I want to go into, but I wonder if first let's pick like boundary capacity. So can we go there? Can you talk to me a little bit about what would it look like for someone? Because this is an area, I mean, all six of those are so relevant for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers in so many different ways. And everyone is probably wondering why I'm not saying money as the first one, but I'm specifically picking boundaries because so many folks come to the nonprofit sector so you know, really rooted in wanting to help, wanting to serve, wanting to partner and really uncomfortable with boundaries. It is probably like the, one of the biggest issues I see in my work with folks. So talk to me a little bit about the boundary capacity. I think this is a huge issue for so many people, no matter what sector you're in, because we want to be liked. We don't want people to be upset with us. We don't want people to think badly of us. And so a lot of times that means that we make ourselves doormats without even realizing it. Or we put other people's needs before our own. And the way I define boundary capacity is making sure that you are clear to everybody around you and the universe at large what you are and are not available for, period. And it's not just that, though. There's an interesting thing about boundaries that very few people talk about. Because we tend to think of boundaries as walls. And so those of us who really care and want to help, we don't feel comfortable with a boundary if we think it's like a wall that's unhelping and unfeeling and cold, right? That's how people tend to view a boundary, especially if you're a person who cares and wants to help. But that's not how I view boundaries. Boundaries can be helpful structures and containers that keep everybody safe. Because have you ever been around a person who has no boundaries? How do you feel around them? I feel really uneasy. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells because they have not stated any boundaries to me at all. I don't know what might offend them. I don't know if I can joke around. Like, I don't know what I can do with that person because there's zero. And children, when like parents don't have any boundaries or rules for children, they're miserable too. They don't feel safe. There's no containment, right? So that's one way to think of boundaries that I think is really important. The other thing that very few people think about with boundaries 
is that it's also almost like you're making a specific request to the universe about what you do want when you are saying no to the things you don't want. You know, if we're thinking about things like manifesting, for example, or even not even just manifesting, but people observing your behaviors. If you keep saying yes to things that you don't want to do or that you don't want to be involved in, or you're just a yes person, nobody ever knows what to really give you. Nobody ever really knows what you really want because setting a boundary and saying no to something makes it clear to somebody what you are, right? And then the last thing about boundaries that a lot of people don't talk about is that boundaries are not just with other people. Boundaries are with ourselves too. And we forget that we have to set boundaries with our own selves and our own minds and our own actions that we make on a daily basis. So when we have those things lined up and on point for the level where we are, we have what's known as boundary capacity. And that means that I can set a boundary and sure, I'm not going to say that you're never going to feel a little nervous about setting a boundary. Of course you are, but you can handle the nervousness and you don't allow the nervousness to make you say yes to something that you're a no to. Signs that you have boundary capacity issues are obviously you have trouble saying no. A very interesting sign that a lot of people are shocked to discover is that you're having burnout and health issues, or you're starting to feel resentful of your work, of the people you work with. You find yourself, I'm working with somebody right now who is really miserable in her job, and she notices that she literally goes into work and she's just nitpicking everything to death in her head. And it's like, sure, the workplace could improve and she has to set better boundaries. And now she's so resentful because she hasn't had those boundaries. She's just looking for stuff now to be upset about. Also, it really can affect our performance. It can affect our thinking because if we don't have any boundaries, we don't have any time for self-care. We don't have any time for nourishing our own selves so that we can show up at our best in our jobs. And so those are all interesting little signs of boundary capacity issues. Another sign is you're constantly attracting people who are boundary pushers. If you're always like, geez, why are all these people always like trying, giving them a finger, trying to take an arm, you know, whatever. If that's happening to you a lot, and I'm not saying that everything that happens to you, you attract, because I don't believe in that. But sometimes it's because that's what you're putting out there. And you're just basically saying, I'm a doormat. And then the people who trample on you because you told them you're a doormat by not having boundaries, start referring other people to you who are going to treat you the same way. So Those are all boundary capacity issues. Okay. I love, I think that's so helpful to think about. And one of the things I'm curious about, you know, a lot of times, and I'm sure this is true for other sectors, but there's a really high turnover rate with fundraisers. And because of burnout, many of them are leaving the sector as a whole, but a lot of them are jumping from organization to organization, believing that something's going to be different somewhere else. I was definitely guilty of this earlier in my career before I discovered some of the limitations on my own capacity through a different framework, but really aligned with what you're talking about. And I think this boundary piece is actually what's happening. And so a lot of times when I am dealing with a client who wants to leave, right, because their work isn't respecting their boundaries, right, there's so much sort of emphasis put on the structure around them and not enough ownership on how are they, how can they show up? Where's their capacity there? I'm just curious your thoughts on that and how you see that play out. Well, I'd say that that started with you before the interview process. 
it's not necessarily the fault of the company. I mean, it can be, or of the organization, right? You'll see how it's all kind of like a circular thing that happens. If you are very clear, because here's the other thing, people who are not used to or feel nervous about setting boundaries, they don't know what their boundaries really are. So if you don't really know what your boundaries are, then you're going to go, as an example, the moment you start looking for a job in any organization that you want to work for, because you're not clear on your boundaries, you won't be filtering out job positions that are very clearly going against your job description. So you'll just take a bunch of different job interviews, for example, and then you'll go to the job interview and you will fail to notice signs that boundaries or your boundaries would not be respected there. And then you, because of that, because you are not clear on your boundaries, both from an energetic perspective and from an actual tangible speaking them, embodying them perspective, you'll send the message to them that you're cool with those boundaries not being in place at that organization, or you forget to ask questions that clarify if your boundaries would be respected. And then you get into the organization and even there you're not speaking your boundaries. And, you know, I'm working with a woman who something similar is happening to her in order to sort of impress people when she first started, she was just saying yes to everything. And now they just all expect her to do all of this stuff. And she's had to start saying no and just leaving it to other people. Um, and so I would say, sure, there are many organizations that don't respect the boundaries of their workers, their employees, you know, whatever it is that you do with the organization. But I would say that started from the very beginning because your picker is off because you have not gotten comfortable with getting clear on what your boundaries are. And a little side note to that that I have to add because it's really important. When we set boundaries, we tend to set boundaries for where we are right now. But just like all human beings, well, growth-oriented human beings, which I know everybody listening to this is, (laughs) Um, if you're a growth-oriented human being, you're changing, which means your boundaries are changing. So many years ago, on certain things, my boundaries had to be a little bit more rigid because I was still developing a feeling of safety around those areas in my life. Now, my boundaries can move and shift and they're more responsive to the moment because I've grown and I've gotten mastery over boundaries to a certain degree. But what happens is we'll set a boundary based on where we are now or who we think we were five years ago. And we forget that where I'm going, like let's say a year from now is where I'm going right now. I've got to set the boundaries of that person. I got to start setting that in place now because the act of even setting the boundaries of my future self starts to make me become the future self. See, And then it makes it so that when I get there, my boundaries are good and I'm not having energy leaked from a million different places. And that's a whole other conversation, right? All of the little ways that we leak and drain energy that we're not even aware of. So that's my answer to your question. Okay. I love that. And I kind of want to go to the leaking energy, but I also just want to ask you how much is this related to our beliefs about our own self-worth? When you're talking about those boundaries and setting them, and I think about my own growth in this area, going into organizations and feeling like when I was younger, 
that I couldn't. Now I get that that was like a limiting belief on myself, you know, now in hindsight, but I felt like I might not get the job if I set that boundary and that other person doesn't set the boundary there. Whereas when I went into my last job running an organization, I knew that the board chair worked all hours of the night, was texting people. And so when they were deciding to hire me or not, I said, you know, I will be getting a company phone and it will only be on from 8 a.m to 6 p.m. and I will be unreachable. And it was hard and it was scary a little bit. And I did not have the capacity to do that, you know, seven, 10 years earlier. Um, and But I think for me, a lot of that had to deal with, if that doesn't work for them, okay, I'll find another job. I had enough sort of like self-worth and self-knowing to set that boundary. So how is that all related? Well, <laughs> Is that too big of a question? <laughs> no, no, it's not. That's scarcity thinking. Mm. Because when you think that you think about this for a moment, if this was, you know, any other kind of relationship and somebody wanted you to do something that really went against your values and they didn't care that it did, they just still wanted you to do it. What would you think about that person? They don't care about you. Mm. You know, there's this amazing story. I'm a mm. huge fan of Oprah, role model my whole life. And she had this awesome story about boundaries that she told that I love using an example. She said the way she does her boundaries is if somebody asks for something one time and she says no, and then they come back to her a second time and ask, she's like, okay, I get it. You want to try one more time, but it's still a no. Mm -hmm. If they come back and ask a third time after her second no, She's like, they don't care about me and I don't want to do business with that person, right? And so that's, and the idea that if you say, if you don't say yes to this, I might not get the job is scarcity thinking because it implies that's the only job that you could possibly get. And I don't care even if you're looking online every day and you just don't see jobs, I promise you that is not the only job that you can get. And I know this from personal experience because I've worked with tons of people who are afraid to say no because they're afraid of losing an opportunity. They're afraid that they're going to it's never going to come back around again. Well, to that I say then that wasn't the opportunity for you because what's meant for you is meant for you and it will always come to you. Period. If it doesn't come back, it was not meant to be. Number 2, there are so many possibilities that are kind of outside of our realm of thinking and when we keep limiting ourselves to I have to say yes to these less than ideal options. We don't force our brain to start looking outside the box and thinking differently. And we're also, from an energetic perspective, not communicating energetically that we're open to other opportunities landing in our lap. So that's the part of the boundary piece that I was saying, that it's you communicating to the universe what you are available for mm. and making a specific request. When there is no clear direction because you're saying yes to everything, how do I know what to send you, right? How do I know? A great example is uh, there was one month many years ago in my business where we were very tight on cash flow and I was trying to figure out the usual avenues of bringing in cash and nothing was working. And I just kind of let it go and I said, okay, I'm just going to let it go and just open up to possibilities. And literally the next day, Somebody, I had, you know, we all own random domains that we bought like 10 years ago. You know? I have way too many. 
I think I have like 50. Okay. So anyway, I had this domain and somebody offered me $7,000 for it. Wow. And I needed that month, I needed 10,000, right? So I negotiated back and I said 11 and they accepted. My cash that month came from a direction I never would have thought, yeah. let me turn around and sell this. So that's an example of how there are so many possibilities. And when we are not willing to stick to our values and our boundaries and say, I know that I might lose this opportunity, but if I lose it, it was not meant for me because they don't, they don't care enough about me as their worker to care about my well-being and make sure I'm being mm. honored. And number two, or it may just be that it's an environment that's just not a good fit. So don't try to make yourself fit. Because you're going to end up quitting anyway, right? Exactly. It's not going to work out anyway. Or it could be that you just need to like say no so that you can start thinking outside of the box. Because I promise you, in all my years of working with people, and it's been a lot of people I've worked with, I have never seen someone without options. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Well, okay, there's this really interesting synergy between our work that I want to highlight in a second, but I first want to ask, is scarcity the opposite of capacity? And I don't really believe in black and white thinking, so not maybe not a, a pure opposite, but is that on the other side of it? I wouldn't say that. I think scarcity is more a symptom of a money capacity issue, scarcity mm. thinking. What is the opposite of capacity? I think the opposite of capacity is feeling disempowered and like you have no options, mm. feeling optimized by your situations. That to me is the opposite of capacity. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Mm. Are you familiar at all with the Energy Leadership Index? It maps so interestingly against what you're talking about. There are these seven levels of energy and leadership, and they start in real catabolic energy, which is victimhood, martyrdom, tunnel vision, judgment, black and white thinking, all the way up to level seven in anabolic energy, which is prism of opportunity, connection, joy, mutual benefit. So this is the coaching framework that I use. And so everything that you're saying, I'm like, and you're right, like, yes, yeah, scarcity is in that catabolic state. It's likely a driver of a lot of the capacity. I bet it's deeply related to a lot of the capacity issues in the nonprofit sector because structurally, like the money capacity issue is such an institutionalized sort of framework, right? Or like mindset yes. because of how the desperation and funding cycles are set up structurally for the sector. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me that you sort of called that out. And then the way that scarcity in as an outcome of the money capacity in the sector then actually creates 
all these other capacity issues like boundaries and like others, I'm sure. What do you think? I don't view one capacity as being the creator of all the others. For me, they're all equal and they're all very interwoven. I would say the capacity issue that underscores the most of the other capacity issues is actually your embodiment capacity, which is essentially navigating challenges with ease and confidence. And that includes mentally, spiritually, emotionally, most of all emotionally, physically, right? So that's what I consider embodiment capacity. And I think that's where we find issues of self-worth. That's where you find issues of feeling not worthy of something. That's where you find issues of feeling like we don't belong. And so we automatically count ourselves out of things. That's where we find this erroneous thing that we're all taught that we're somehow broken and need to be fixed. That's where I find all those issues is in the embodiment capacity category. And I think those things can very often underscore a scarcity issue, a money issue, a visibility issue, whether or not I feel comfortable setting boundaries, whether or not I feel comfortable hiring the team that I need to support me to reach my goal. And when I say team, I don't just mean like you have to have your own team. I mean, who's helping you at home? Because there's life teams too, right? And I think that. I want to speak to something else you said earlier, which is, you know, there are ways of doing things in every industry. And I've had clients come to me and say, well, I want to charge more money, but no one in my industry charges more than this. Mm. Like, who cares? Who cares what everybody in your industry is doing? Well, that's what we do. Well, that's not what you do. And what's interesting is when they start to feel confident enough to start doing things their own way, even though they may be in heavily like structured industries, again, it's like, look at the ways we limit ourselves. And we think that Mm. because it's been done this way, it has to continue to be done Mm. this way. And I'm stuck like this cog in this machine. And actually the people who are always successful in any industry did not do things Mm. the way everybody was doing them. They don't. Maybe they played the game a little bit, right? But they thought it outside of the box and they saw many more opportunities available to them that weren't necessarily put right in front of them through the structures they were in. And so even that we have to be careful of because when we start thinking that we're limited to the structure, we literally become limited to the structure And how do you think industry innovation happens? It's the people Mm. who dare to believe that maybe we can do this one differently. Which is kind of the whole inspiration behind this podcast, because I really hit like a rock bottom moment where I was like, okay, I think I need to quit. I think I need to leave the sector. This is not working for me. And then I think it took maybe me like surrendering in that process to then be ready to absorb some other frameworks that at the time were not related to my fundraising, but they were this coach training. And I got trained in behavior change and habit building and design thinking. And I was in this place of openness, I think, because I was sort of like, what's next for me? And then I got to a point where I was like, wait, actually what these things mean is that this can also be different. And I've just been so siloed and so in this either or world for so long that I thought that's what the world looked like, you know? And so really the idea of bringing experts like you into the sort of nonprofit audience is to say, you guys, this prism is so big. Like our opportunities are so big. And so I'm just so grateful and inspired by your framework. I just want to say that. 
Thank you. Well, and I also want to add to the embodiment piece in terms of asking for money, right? Because I don't care what sector you're in, whether you're a nonprofit or you're making sales for profit, you're still asking for money. Mm-hmm. A sale is asking for money, right? Marketing and, and sales is asking for money. <laughs> that's what you are doing. And everybody knows that's what you are doing. <laughs> I, I'm not posting on my Instagram because I'm just having fun and I'm right. so, I have a huge inheritance <laughs> that I don't need to work, right? <laughs> so here's the thing. Embodiment capacity is so important because how are you showing up to ask for the money? Mm. If you are showing up and I feel like I'm just like begging for money and I'm beneath you and you are gifting me this money, well, how do you think you're going to be treated? Because it's this is power dynamics, right? And I talk about this a lot in embodiment capacity when I work with my clients. There's power dynamics that are very outdated, very like old school, toxic, patriarchal, you know, like supremacist, and it's the power dynamic. One up, one down. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the world that our world has thrived off of, right? One up, one down. And so what happens is we go to situations where, where we have to ask for money, right? Or where you're asking for, for in my industry, when I ask for a sale, or I talk to someone and sell mm-hmm. them something. If I come into that interaction, like, oh, I'm so sorry to bother you. But mm-hmm. like, really, you know, we should work together. And if you would like bestow me with your money, I could help you. Then that's exactly how I'm going to be treated. I'm going to be treated like I am one down and that person is one up. I have now put myself beneath that person. If I show up to a sale or to asking for money with, I am confident in the value that this provides, whether it be something that's not for profit or not, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I know what I bring to the table. I know the possibilities of what this can do, right? And if you want to be a part of this, great. If you don't, there's 20 other people for me to ask. If you yes. show up with that energy, now you've got my attention and you're going to get treated very differently. You could lead fundraising trainings. <laughs> <laughs> Because I mean, that is a lot of the time what I do is model what you just did is say, how different does this feel, right? I have this incredible opportunity. I would love to include you in it if you're open to it, you know, and, and, you know, I have fundraisers obviously coming to me all the time, feeling guilty about asking, feeling small, that power dynamic that is rooted in history. Okay. So I I also want to relieve from people that like, that's not your fault that those are the things that you believe or that we have all been taught those things. And women in particular around money after generations and generations of it being inappropriate for us to talk about money. I mean, we are overcoming these beliefs and barriers and all of those things. But I said to a client recently who was, you know, having a lot of feelings coming up around making the ask, which I don't even usually say that to my clients. I talk about as opportunity. That's like my sort of mantra. But I said to her, I was like, tell me about something you bought recently that you really love. And she told me about this bracelet. And I was like, tell me about like the process of buying that bracelet. Right. And she was telling me, and I was like, so that company who sold you the bracelet or the advertisement that you saw, should they feel bad for having advertised that to you? Or should they have said like, sorry to bother you. We just thought maybe you'd like to know about this bracelet because you, right. It's like, no, never in a million years. Right. And so I love the way that you're talking about that. Well, and she was looking for that bracelet. 
right? Mm. She wanted that bracelet. She was looking for something. And that's how you have to think of it. There's many people out there looking Mm. to give money to organizations like yours. And what's beautiful about it is like, I was literally just on a coaching call talking about asks. And the person I wasn't teaching this, one of my mentors was talking about it. And she was saying, you have to just build the habit of getting used to asking. And so that asking has no emotional charge, because here's the beautiful part about asking. And this is what came up for me when I heard that. Number one, if I ask and you're a jerk, that's information for me. Mm. Right? Thank you. Mm. Thank you for sending that information my way, Mm. because I know not to ask you again. And I know I don't want to work with you in the future. Right? I've been given a gift. Right? If I ask you and you pull some one up, one down dynamic with me, that's also information. Mm. It's not personal. I'm just getting information through my asks and it's getting me clearer on who I want to work with and who I don't want to work with. Because Mm. if you're accepting money from someone, it is still, it is a working relationship, even if you never talk to them again, right? Because they've given something and now they expect to have some sort of input in some sort of way or some recognition or something, right? And so- that's how I want you to view it for anybody listening is asking is not you inconveniencing anyone. There are people out there waiting, like wanting to give to what you offer and they don't even know where to start or how to find that. And if you ask and it's a match, they're going to be thrilled. Just like I'm thrilled. I found this bracelet and I'm giving you my money and not one. I think this company's taking advantage of me because they had this beautiful bracelet in the store window <laughs> and it made me want to buy it, right? So, yeah. How rude. <laughs> yeah, so just yeah. look at all those rejections. Like I do this with clients all the time where they're very sensitive to rejection or they start to feel demoralized over rejection. Like it's not rejection. It's just information that's making mm. clearer about who you want to work with. And gosh, you're being protected in many ways because how many times have we gotten into relationships with people, whether professional, personal, whatever, and things don't get revealed until we're far down the line. Mm. I wish I had seen this, right? Well, guess what? Asking people for things reveals very quickly if you want to be in a relationship with them or not. And it's a real gift. I mean, inside my course, I do something called the seven day no challenge where I have folks cold calling and their goals are around getting a certain amount of no's, right? And it's just like exactly, I mean, really like you could teach inside my course. (laughs) It's so amazing. But I'm curious about this last piece because how related or do you believe it's related those feelings that we have around rejection do those correlate at all with our boundary capacity in terms of our own ability to say no? Like if we are, if we have a much harder time saying no, does it likely mean we have a much harder time hearing no, or are those not connected? Uh, I don't necessarily think they would be connected. They could certainly be, but I think people are just such entire universes unto themselves with all these nuances. I don't think there's any hard and fast, like this connection is always their role that. I mean, I've had clients that were very sensitive to hearing no's and they had no problem saying no. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm bringing it up and this might be a little bit outdated when this is released, but you know, this whole thing with Simone Biles just happened. And a lot of the outrage that I feel like I saw around her setting this boundary was from people that 
don't have boundaries. And, you know, it was like triggering a lot. And it it just felt very sort of clear as day to me around like why people, I mean, there were a lot of components, right? All the stuff we talked about with, you know, patriarchy and supremacy, all of that interwoven as well. But I also felt like I saw a real resentment around it because of people's own lack of feeling like they can quote unquote do that. Yes, I completely agree with you. And I also think this brings me back to something I thought of in the earlier conversation we were having, which is that a lot of us keep looking to the structure to save us. A lot of us keep looking to the structure to give us direction as to how to think outside of the box. The structure doesn't tell you how to think outside of the box. The structure tells you how to think within the structure. And what I love about what Simone Biles and people like Naomi Osaka have done is they're actually pushing against the structure, right? So Naomi was like, I will not do press at the French Open for my own mental health, right? It wasn't, she wasn't being a brat. She needed, she was having a mental health issue, right? And she took that time for herself. Whereas before we've been raised on Nike, just do it, you know, like push through. And yes, I do think we need capacity to push through sometimes if that's your journey. But for other people, their journey is to not push through and listen to their body. And that's a great example of the system was not going to help them because the system is set up to have these press conferences that are extremely stressful for the athletes, have these work hours that are extremely stressful. The system is set up, speaking of Simone Biles, look at someone like Carrie Strug who did her finish on that broken ankle. And it was like, oh, it was so celebrated. But guess what? The rest of her career was ruined because she still had that issues from injuries from that event, right? So how her, like she even says it, right? Like how heroic was that moment? She actually sacrificed herself to fit into this ideal that like you push through even with the injury, right? And so that what you're saying resonates a lot with me for that because you have to stop thinking that staying within the system is going to give you the answers for how to get outside of the system. You have to be willing to do things differently. Yes. And I think so much of what you're talking about is tapping into like, what are your values and to feel a sense of conscious choice around them. And so I just think that's so like double clicking. (laughs) And I think the people who get angry about that are the people who are also disenfranchised from the system by the system. And they're angry that someone had the bravery to stand up when they didn't, right? How dare you rebel against the system, even though secretly I'm also bitter that I couldn't rebel against the system. Yeah. And I, you know, in total honesty, I can imagine myself maybe 10 years ago having that feeling too, you know, before I really did my own work around some of these issues. I mean, I felt so proud of her and was like, I am so feel so grateful. My daughter gets to grow up in a world with role models like that. But I can imagine that in the past, I would have felt a little bit like jealous almost, you know, and I also understood, I think not understood in a like necessarily thinking it was appropriate, especially the public outcry wildly inappropriate. You have no idea what it takes to be an athlete of that caliber. Yeah, yeah. but I could empathize, I guess, with the feelings of jealousy that I felt like were underneath some of the reactions we were seeing. I could see that in there too. And so I think the work that you're doing and helping people 
everyone feel this sense of conscious choice around these things is just so critical and so important. I want to make sure I'm conscious of time, but I want to make sure I'd love your thoughts on how the money capacity might show up in for nonprofit professionals and around fundraising. And then I'll make sure we have time for you to share all the ways for folks to connect with you. And yeah, well, I think from you, I need to know what are some common complaints you get from people around money in the nonprofit sector? Well, so I'm not sure if this necessarily applies with the capacity piece, but maybe it does. You know, a lot of it is around the discomfort talking about money. A lot of what comes up is in major gift, the old school methods of major gift fundraising, so large donations, is that it's going to be this like 12 to 18 month timeline where you're cultivating donors, where in fact, what you're doing is building a semi superficial relationship with an end goal in mind that you're not sort of supposed to be super transparent about, but it's, it's underneath all of these pieces. And it's not what I teach at all around building relationships, but I, I think there's some connection there. No, what you're talking about is essentially what I talk about when I work with business owners who want to build better networks and connections. It's the same thing. I mean, capacity work is for everybody. I say this all the time. It doesn't matter what career you have. Everybody needs more capacity. But what you're essentially talking about is building transactional relationships. And that's really kind of a leftover of this society that we have that is built on transactions. I mean, if you go all the way back to when people settled in the US, that was transactional. This is mine. Let me kick everybody who was here already out and pretend they're the ones that shouldn't be here and I get to take over this land, right? And even with slavery, like human beings being treated like objects to accomplish some work, right? Mm. And being traded like a transaction. That's left over from all sorts of old Mm. colonial, patriarchal ideals. And then we have the Industrial Revolution, which teaches us that working hard and hustling until you drop is virtuous. Why? Because the people who benefit from that need to be able to teach these things so that they can continue to thrive. Even way back before all of this in like the feudal system, right? This whole idea that it's more virtuous to be poor and not have any money, right? That was taught by the feudal lords to the serfs to keep them in line and make it romantic that they were working and never being able to pay off these debts, right? So we have to, I mean, to answer this question, I have to go far back in history Mm. because we have to understand how all these beliefs that we think are new are actually ways that we get taught to self-defeat. And it gives power to people who benefit from those things. And transactional relationships comes out of that because it's all about what can I get from you and what can you get from me? And in many cases, it's often just about one person getting something, Mm. the other person getting less. And one thing I always teach my clients that I learned myself is that all negotiations, because that's what it is. A money transaction is a negotiation. It's an exchange of energy. And in, in an exchange of energy, in many ways, we'll talk about that in a moment, but The whole point is that we get taught that to see people as not people. And I'm not saying you don't, especially if you're in the nonprofit sector, you probably would protest and go, I see people as people. But 
we have to acknowledge that these things, these indoctrinations are all within us. And Mm. no matter how hard we try, it's something we have to keep rooting out. And that's when we have purely transactional relationships is when we end up making relationships with people that we don't actually respect and that we actually wouldn't really have an alignment of values with just because they're going to give money. And that enforces scarcity thinking because it enforces that there's only money available that's right then and there versus what you're talking about, which is, hey, oh, this is the thing, win-win relationship, right? In negotiations, I'm all about what's the win-win. Everybody has to give up a little to get what they want. And then everybody feels good walking away from that exchange. Same thing with building relationships. You don't have to build an 18-month-long relationship just because someone has money. How about find people who have money to, to give and that you really gel with? Because guess what? Now that isn't just a one-time thing. That can become a lifelong giving thing and you giving back and them giving back. And let me tell you something. There is a heck of a lot more wealth generation in those types of relationships And they're less exhausting over time because both people are now forming a true connection they both want to continue to contribute to. So again, that's all leftover thinking from structures that were set up to only benefit a few people. And we forget that we have the power to build our own structures. I'm obsessed with what you just said. and But I think what nonprofits would say is, no, the 18-month thing is what doesn't make it transactional. That's what makes it a deep relationship, right? Because that's how they've been taught. And length, length of relationship does not indicate depth. Right? It's like the honesty, the transparency, the partnership. And that, yeah, I mean, I have been really thinking about this word transactional because it is used as such a bad word in the nonprofit sector, but I think tied to the wrong actions or the wrong beliefs. And so it's so interesting because a transaction isn't inherently bad. We make transactions all the time that feel great. We buy homes, right? And so it's not, the money movement is not this dirty thing that's happening, right? It's the ways in which we are doing it that makes it feel disconnected. Or compromising values because we need the money or not actually taking the time to do better research, even in that 18 months, Mm. when it's transactional, when it's purely transactional, what happens is we kind of will let red flags go by because we're purely focused on getting Mm. the money, right? And then now we're in a relationship with this person who's given the money and all these problems are cropping up. When it's not transactional and you're focused on creating a genuine connection, you're much more likely to notice if you actually even like that person or that organization. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. I could talk to you forever, (laughs) Um, but I want to make sure, will you tell folks all the different ways they can get in touch with you, how they can work with you? And then I like to invite every guest to end sharing a nonprofit that's personally meaningful. And if folks uh, could go check it out and give if they can, that would be great. Yeah. Well, you can always find me at my website, lisafabrega.com, L-I-S-A-F-A-B-R-E-G-A.com. I send out, I highly encourage that you get on my email list because I talk about capacity all the time, every week on my emails, and you get to learn a little bit more. Plus, when you sign up, you also get an amazing video 
where I start to show you why the things you're trying aren't mm. working like they used to. And I ask you three really good questions that I bet nobody has ever asked you before mm. that are going to give you a lot of clarity on why things are not working for you. So you can find me there on my website. I'm also very active over on Instagram. Same name, Lisa Fabrega on Instagram. And yeah, that's where you can find me online. I'm on Facebook as well. I'm basically Lisa Fabrega across all platforms, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, (laughs) you name it. That's where I am. Easy, easy peasy. Thank you. And which nonprofit would you like to highlight? One of my favorite nonprofits actually started by uh, my friend Zoe. She started a nonprofit called One Light Global. I'm a huge fan of the work they're doing because they're a smaller organization. The money really goes directly to the on the ground efforts. So it's really nice to see what happens with your money and like the joy that it creates when you give. So every year I donate my birthday fundraiser to One Light Global. They do a lot of work. They were doing a lot of work in South Sudan, helping, you know, because most of the people there are women and children because most of the men have been killed and they have suffered extreme trauma and they've successfully built a beautiful little community there with a community center and put women in leadership positions and they're supporting themselves and have skills and jobs. And now they're doing some incredible work with the Hopi Nation here in the United States as well. So I'm a huge fan of their work. And every time I give from our company, it goes straight to One Light Global. Amazing. And we'll make sure all of that information is below as well in all the notes. And thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation. I'm so grateful. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. All right. When Lisa talked about facing gallon-sized challenges with pint-sized capacity, I felt really seen. This is true in my business in the same way it was when I was running nonprofits in-house. When we're leveling up our organizations, we have to be increasing our personal capacity simultaneously. And when we don't, that's when we're finding ourselves burnt out, frustrated, in paralysis mode, and filled with self-doubt. Lisa offered so many helpful models to reflect on where and how we need to grow as leaders. Check out more of the takeaways from this episode on MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast. There, you'll find all the detailed show notes from this episode, as well as more information about Lisa and how to connect with her work. Most importantly, thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners, especially you, and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day, and I'll see you next week. loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.